Welcome to the Exploress. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Today I have something special for you. I invited my friend, fellow author, and co-host Amy Kaufman to join us on the show. Amy has written many incredible, award-winning, best-selling novels. And, whether they're set in space or in an alternate version of our world, they're all inspired in some way by history. Amy's joining me to talk about how history helped inspire and inform our novels, The Isles of the Gods and Nightbirds, and talk about the joys and challenges of weaving it into made-up worlds. If you like what you hear, make sure to tune in to our other podcast, Pub Dates, where we take you behind the scenes on the making of our novels and their journeys to publication. Grab your favorite cocktail and a disco ball. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My newest lady president, Mary. My newest boss lady, Denny. My warrior queens, Alexis, Amanda, Kate, Ika, June, Neve and Sloan, and Samantha. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Katie, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, Samara, and Teresa. And my lady pharaohs, Kate, Sophie, Laura, Louis, and the fabulous Courtney's. Patrons of the show really help me keep it going, and they get exclusive access to bonus episodes, sneak peeks, Q&As, full author interviews, and much more. To find out all about it, just go to my website. Hi, Amy. Thanks for coming and joining me on the Explores. Oh, I am nerdily excited to be here. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was one of the very first patrons of the Explorers. I'm mm-hmm. I'm an Explorers hipster. I am proud to say I downloaded the first episode when it dropped and I've been around ever since. So I feel like most people listening are probably podcast nerds too, and they can imagine how it feels to be climbing inside your favorite podcast and, and getting <laughs> to drive along with the host. So this is very fun for me. Oh, well, it's very fun for me as well. And I'm really excited to get into what we're going to talk about today. Mm. So you and I both have novels coming out imminently, fantasy Mm -hmm. novels. And when writing them, we both took a lot of inspiration from the 1920s. And I thought it would be fun for us to chat about how we did that, how you take inspiration from history when you're writing a completely fictional fantasy story. Um, Mm -hmm. and just tell listeners a little bit about our process and our books. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about The Isles of the Gods, which is coming out on May 2nd and is available for pre-order right now, wherever good books are sold. How about you pitch it for us? All right. Gosh, it's coming out in May. It's probably time for me to get get good at doing this but like, yes I keep well my mine is by the time this episode drops my book might be coming out like today or tomorrow and I'm still not sure I'm great at it so we do our best look I mean it's famously <laughs> authors are famous for this it's it's the thing we do where you know someone asks us to recommend a book and suddenly we can't remember a single book we've ever written someone asks us to describe our books and we say oh there's characters in it they do but, things <laughs> Look, let me let me take a swing. Um, mm. So The Isles of the Gods is a fantasy novel. Uh, it's got magic. It's got romance. It's got slumbering gods in it. It has, as, as you said, that 1920s tint to it. And it's set at that sort of crossroads when new technology started to creep in alongside old technology. So the adventure takes place on tall ships and in cities full of a mix of neon lights and horse-drawn carriages we meet a spoiled but annoyingly handsome prince. Uh, one night he boards one of those tall ships and drags a sailor girl who wants nothing to do with him into a quest that might just prevent a war. Mm. Mm. So, And it's amazing, listeners. I have read it more than once because I am spoiled. I am a spoiled prince and um, it is amazing. And I can't wait to share it. I can't wait to be able to talk about it with other readers. <laughs> Hurry up, May. Yes. Well, one of my one of my absolute favorite scenes in that book was written at 
I was going to say at Kate's request, but it was more at Kate's violent demand, to be honest. Indeed. Uh, she, she knew what she wanted and she asked for it forcefully and <laughs> she got it. Sure did. Um, now, I I have an advantage here because I'm on the side of your listeners today, Kate. I am one of your listeners and so I feel like I need to do all of the things that they would do if they were on the podcast. I feel like as the explorers, perhaps you need no introduction, but as my friend Kate the writer, listeners, I thought I might give Kate a fresh introduction because I know I always feel like I know the hosts of my my podcasts that I love the most. Uh, and so now you are about to know Kate a little more. Uh, did you know, for instance, that she was a high school teacher for years and she taught creative writing and she very enthusiastically taught Shakespeare to a bunch of high school students, including all of the best insults. You know it. Uh, she, <laughs> you know it. She was a nonfiction editor for over a decade at fancy places like National Geographic. Uh, she worked on books on everything from beer to Star Trek to how to make sparkly earrings, which delights me because, you know, Kate's love of sequins is well known and it mm. was it was it's rearing deep. its head. It's very deep and prolonged. It's deep and true and its its duration has, has been long. Uh, but, of course, you know, the thing that I really want you to know about Kate is that she writes novels. Her debut, Night Birds, is out this week. It, even before release, has been receiving what we call starred reviews in the industry. They come from professional journals and they are reserved for books of, and I quote, exceptional merit. So I am so excited Nightbirds is finally going to be out in the world. Kate, tell your listeners what you made. Ooh, okay. Let's see. It's my turn now. <laughs> mm. Okay, well, so Nightbirds is about a world with a 1920s-style prohibition on magic. And within this world, there are girls they call the Nightbirds who will give you their rare gifts with just a kiss if you pay the price. These girls are treasured, they're protected by the city's wealthy and elite great houses, their identities are hidden behind masks. They give a select few their magic before they go on to marry into one of these great house families and pass their magic on to the next generation. Um, and all three of these girls are, they have very different perspectives on being a nightbird. There's Matilde, she is my spoiled privileged princess who thinks the world was designed for her and thinks there's absolutely nothing wrong with the nightbird system. It's perfect. It works for everyone. Then there's Sayer, who's a girl from a seedy part of town whose mother was a nightbird who fell from grace and is essentially becoming a nightbird to try to take these people for all they're worth before burning the bridge behind her. And then there is Asa, who is an out-of-towner, very much a fish out of water who has been told all of her life that to have magic and to use magic is a sin. So she has a lot of guilt about this thing inside her, and she's worried about the ramifications of using it. So you have three girls who are not friends who end up having to rely on each other when a political scheme threatens to reveal their identities, their secrets, and it threatens their lives. And suddenly they're starting to question whether this nightbird system is actually a gilded cage. It's full of magic and intrigue and found family and a whole lot of fiery feminism, because of course it is. And the book was shaped in so many ways by the work I've been doing on the Explorers. On that note, I know that history mm. has been a huge inspiration for both of us in all realms of life, and especially in our fiction. So why don't we talk a little bit about what got us both interested in history? Yeah, it's, it is certainly one of those things that I have been drawn to all my life. You know, there are some things that are just magnetic for you and them being magnetic for you is a part of who you are. You, you don't know why. It's just always been that way. I was so excited to start what we call high school in Australia It's when you hit seventh grade because that was the, the year that I was going to get a dedicated history class. And I did. I got Miss Harris, who was amazing. 
And I remember sitting there in the very first lesson as we opened our textbooks and she started to talk to us about ancient Suma and it was everything I wanted it to be. It was absorbing. I was fascinated that we knew these things. I It sparked in me this feeling that I still have today when I study history or, you know, when I go to museums and, and look at artifacts and I think, well, you know, what was she like, the woman who held this? How can we possibly still have something? And I try to imagine people, you know, holding on to my stuff that I have today in a thousand years and, mm. you know, just never quite computes. But I loved it all the way through high school. I went on to university where I studied history as well. I mostly had an interest in the medieval at first, but I ended up all over the place because I tended to follow really great professors into whatever they were teaching. And my thesis was on the migration of Irish women to the United States and New Zealand and Australia, starting in 1870, so about 20 years after the famine, so sparked by the social changes caused by the famine rather than literally migrating because no food, and ending in 1914 because, of course, the world changed in 1914. It is, I mean, I could give you a whole Explorers episode on that. It is fascinating. But mm. for almost all groups that were migrating at that time, the migration rate was about 90% men, give or take, and about 10% women, give or take. The Irish migration stats were 52% women and 48% men. Mm. And my thesis was looking into why that was, what was happening in Ireland to cause that and where were they going and why, what were they pursuing when they migrated. So it is it is a passion of mine. History always has been. What about you? I just, I've loved history for as long as I can remember. I don't know when it started, but I, I always think I've loved history because it's, at its core, it's a really good story. I mean, history is the mm. story of the past, and that story can be told in so many different ways. And even though, and that's why I've loved working in nonfiction for so many years and working with history stories, because all the raw materials are there. There's there's human drama, and there's, you know, there's culture clashes, and there's like, there's just so much there to play with. And how you tell the story really impacts what people hear, um, which is what brought me to talking more about women's history, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So for I've loved history forever, <laughs> as long as I can remember. I remember in elementary school, we always had to do these, these projects where you had to highlight someone from history and write a report on them. And I just found such delight in writing stories specifically about women from history. And Every time I did, it was like discovering, it was like I was discovering a new continent. I just felt like such an explorer. And I'd be like, I I didn't know anything about this woman, Emily Dickinson. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know and anything about her. But like, you know, talk about a super famous uh, woman from history. But as a third grader, <laughs> I was like, I'm discovering, yeah. like I'm breaking new ground here. Have um, you guys heard? <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard the good news about Emily Dickinson? And yeah, I was just always really fascinated by the stories of especially stories that it, it does feel like treasure hunting with history. It feels like you're discovering um, all new worlds sometimes. And like you said, you know, you look at ancient history and think this feels so exotic and so distant and foreign from me. But actually, when you dig into it, it's not really because it's about people. Yeah. And yeah. while so much changes from place to place and era to era. It's also just the stories of what it means to be a human being in the world in different times yeah. and places. So yeah, I I always loved history. I loved it in high school. I remember um, I was a somewhat indifferent high school student, at least for the first half of high school, but and I wasn't all that interested in any classes but my English classes. And then I had my sophomore year, I had a history class, um, and my teacher was Mr. Sachs. And he was just an incredible storyteller. And he would get up in front of the class and like all class was just him. I, I don't want to call it lecturing because it was really more like enthusing <laughs> or orating. I don't know what to call it. But he would just get up and be like, I'm going to tell you a story. 
And it is just wild and incredible and deeply moving. And he would just boom and pace and tell us these stories. And I was just on the edge of my seat every class. It felt like a revelation to have history brought to life like that. And so, yeah, I went to college and I majored in in writing and literature, but I took as many history classes as I could get away with taking. It was almost my minor, but I would have had to stay for an extra semester for it to be my minor. And I was ready to get out of it. <laughs> I was ready to get out and explore <laughs> the world a bit. And then um, when I got into editing, I pretty naturally found myself gravitating towards nonfiction and specifically history. And I spent years editing, proofreading, and contributing to books and, and magazines about different periods in history. And I just found it so inspirational, constantly inspirational. And then when I moved to Australia, I had been teaching for three years. And, and part of teaching in English class is really teaching history, right? Like anytime you read The Great Gatsby, say, which, oh, I, right. so we used to read The Great Gatsby with our 11th graders. And it was like the best time of the year. And I love that book so much for so many different reasons. And I wanted the kids to love it too. So we started this thing called Gatsby Day. And I <laughs> somehow convinced all of my students, and they all did it, to dress up in their best 1920s, you know, attire. And we had like a Gatsby party in our classroom. And it was just the best. <laughs> it was everything Amazing. I wanted as a teacher and as a human being in life. But part of that was about teaching them the history and, you know, understanding the context yeah. of when this was written and who this was written about. And, and you have to understand the history, I think, to be able to appreciate fiction. Most yeah, fiction. you've got to blow the dust off these things to see the colors, mm -hmm. to know what it really is. Yeah. So then later when I was, I was done teaching and I was an editor full time, but I was really missing teaching. I was missing sharing those passions with students. And I was really getting into podcasts and I was looking, scouring, you know, the airwaves for podcasts that were specifically about women in history. And there were a few in 2017, mm -hmm. but there weren't a lot like there are now. Um, times have changed a lot, which is amazing. But I specifically wanted a podcast that talked about what was life actually like during this period. I don't just, I, I love shows that go into biographies, but I also want a show that tells me what was she wearing? What kinds of cultural expectations was she grappling with? What are some of the nitty gritty details of if I were to time travel back? to mm -hmm. her time and place, what would it be like? And that's what drove me to start the Explore Us. Nitty gritty details are kind of your podcast thing. They're really my jam. They really yeah. are my jam. And I never get tired of unearthing them. And it was actually the year that 2018 was when I started the Explore Us. And that was also the year that I started writing Nightbirds in earnest. I'd had the idea a couple of years before, but um, that was the year I really dug in and decided you know, I'm going to do this. It was my first fantasy novel. And I think we went out on submission with it in 2021. And I mean, I had written, as Amy knows, because she's read some of them, I had written several novels before that. I'd spent, you know, a decade writing novels and honing my craft. And um, this was, but this was the, the first one that I sold and got a book deal. And if you're interested in hearing more about how Nightbirds you know, came to be and about its publishing journey, Amy and I on our other podcast, Pub Dates, really dig into that. Yeah. I mean, this is, like I say, this is your thing, the nitty gritty details. So, you know, Pub Dates is, it's a guided tour. It's, if you're a reader who's interested in how the books that you are reading are made, then that's what this is for. It's a backstage tour that has, you know, interviews with our editors and cover designers. It's got the chance to listen in as we figure out how to pitch our books. You heard us say earlier, it's not easy. <laughs> you know, we talk about how the ideas evolved. We, we work out, we talk about how the editorial process worked. It's, it's definitely as frank as I have ever been about mm. publishing. And it really is the, the pulling apart of it uh, to, to show the journey 
to creating a book. It's it's our own DVD extras for for listeners who remember DVD extras. Yes, it's, it's our making of. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's been such a wonderful opportunity for me to talk a little bit more, to get a little bit more personal. You know, on the Explorers, I I think of myself as the narrator and the presenter, but not so much. It's it's not really a podcast about me. And it's been really fun on pub dates to talk a little bit more about me as a as a writer, um, to talk about my process. And I talk a lot about the Explorers um, on that show as well and how that informs mm-hmm. my fiction writing. And, you know, it's just been an amazing education in this in my debut year of figuring out how a book gets made and how my book is going to get made and how to talk about my book on the airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was a journey. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've been in the game for quite a long time, Amy. You, you've been publishing books for many moons, haven't you? Yeah, I've been, I have been here for a while. Uh, Nightbirds is your first book. The Isles of the Gods will be my 19th book. Mm. Uh, I'm a full-time author and have been for about a decade. Uh, and now thanks to Nightbirds, you're a full-time author as well. I sure am. Yes, and it has it has been wonderful. It's been a roller coaster, but it's been great. Um, okay, so obviously, as we've discussed, you and I, we write fiction novels. So we do not mm. write historical fiction. We are writing fantasy. But I think you and I would both describe our books as 1920s tinted in some ways that are similar and some ways that are totally, you know, divergent. So why don't we talk a little bit about why we use history to inform something like a fantasy novel? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting topic and and it's really key to sort of what we're talking about today because you could, well, you know, I was about to say you could make up the whole thing wholesale, but actually that's not true. Actually, everything gets its inspiration from somewhere. And, you know, much as you said earlier that, the reason you've got to get into history when you're studying literature is for context. I think we can also say that you need to get into history when you are world building a secondary world. Otherwise, you just borrow pieces of our world and, you know, stick them on like a costume without understanding their significance and not only sort of at risk of disrespecting them, but also just at risk of not mining them for all the wonderful inspiration that they've got. Uh, world building for a secondary, you know, world, which is what we call worlds where fantasies that are not set on earth are set, it needs to go deep. The world building is an iceberg and you might not share 90% of it with the reader, but on some level they do sense if you don't know what's what with your world. Mm-hmm. So... You know, we both know how to go deep in the sense that we are both experienced historical researchers, but there's this other skill that you have to pair with it, which is first going wide. And I find that really interesting because we tend to view going wide, you know, as as lesser than going deep. But first of all, you're going wide and exposing yourself to lots of different opportunities to get inspired. And that's part one. Part two is then, as you are doing that, finding those little things that will bring your story to life. It's knowing them when you see them. And that takes practice, especially Mm. because often you are spotting something and gathering it and and popping it in your bag without knowing what what book it will be for, without knowing what story it will contribute to. I've picked up stuff and used it a decade later. Exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, a moment like that for me with the Isles of the Gods was learning about wind jammers. So I have found that when I sort of survey the general population, and I think perhaps your listeners might not be a fair sample because, you know, they're history nerds like us, but (laughs) when you survey the general population and you ask them, when do you think tall ships stopped sailing regular cargo routes? Most of them will guess kind of that the year started with an 18. And the answer is, in fact, that they were still going in the 1920s. They were still sailing between the world wars. Uh, Wind jammers were these tall ships that 
were really good if you had a cargo that wasn't going to spoil, if you had lumber or something and you didn't mind if it took just a little longer, you could sail it much more cheaply than you could send it via any other means. And, you know, on this big boat with this small crew, it would it would get there eventually with more room for profit. And I found this fascinating because there were these great photos uh, by this photographer, Alan Villiers, and they were capturing people in the 1920s on these tall ships and they looked like us. You know, in that same way that you said that with the Explorers, you're always fascinated by, you know, yeah, but what was she wearing? What was she thinking? Who was she? I was looking at these pictures and I was thinking, you would barely need to change their outfits before you could, you know, take them out in the town with you and no one would notice today. So I found that sort of intersection of something that I found very old-fashioned with these people who looked very modern interesting. And I asked myself the what if, because that's what you have to find, your what if. And my what if was, what if they'd kept sailing these ships? What would have to happen for that to be true? Mm -hmm. And the answer that popped up immediately was, well, you'd have to be able to control the weather reliably. And that's how I ended up with a whole world and a whole magic system that created exactly that opportunity. So I know your what if, Kate, and I Mm. love it. It's one of my favorite what ifs ever. So talk to me about yours. So I first came up with the central idea for Nightbirds in 2015. And essentially all it was was an image. I saw a girl in a mask who was in an opulent room with a client who had paid to kiss her. But it wasn't just that he paid for a kiss. He paid for what the kiss would give him, which was her magic. So she was able to give him some kind of magical gift. And I was really intrigued by the image and I knew I wanted to explore it, but I didn't have tons more than that. And then a couple months later, I went to New York City and I went out on the town to a show called Sleep No More. And <sighs> Sleep No More. Sleep No More. And it's funny because I really credit this show with so much. It gave me so much inspiration for Nightbirds and for the Exploress. This was really formative for me in in what the Exploress ended up being and its its tone and its vibe. So Sleep No More is this immersive theater experience. You show up at this incredible hotel and it's it's styled as this like 1920s, 1930s, noir, like shadowy, opulent, but also creepy hotel. And everyone is wearing masks. You know, you can't have your phone out. No one can talk. Everyone's wearing masks. And essentially, you're wandering through this hotel. You can go more or less anywhere you want. And the players are dancing and acting around you. And it's just like this, the most incredible immersive experience. And then at the end of the night, you end up being kind of funneled out into this like incredible 1920 style speakeasy it's and the level of detail is just incredible from the outfits to the woman singing on stage to everyone's in character the people behind the bar in character um they're serving you these amazing absinthe cocktails you know there's there's velvet there's it's like it really feels like you've traveled back through time and so obviously, as you know, listeners, that is like my my happy place on this earth. I was like smiling from ear to ear. I was just, I could have just died and gone to heaven. I was so happy. But I was standing in this speakeasy, just letting my mind wander, enjoying the experience. And suddenly I found myself thinking about my girl in a mask. And I thought, what if in her world, magic was illegal? What if there was a prohibition, but instead mm-hmm. of on booze, it was on magic. What would that mm. mean? What would that look like? What would that mean for her? And it just opened yeah. up this world of inspiration and this world of possibility for where the story was going to go. <sighs> and of course, the great thing about writing fantasy with historical undertones is that we don't have to stick strictly to a particular time period. You know, we can decide which bits of history we want to take, which bits of history we want to leave, which bits we just want to tweak a little bit. So you hit the 1920s for Nightbirds. You hit Mm. Prohibition. What did you decide to take from that period to to pull into your story? What did you take? 
Oh, I, I took a lot. I took a whole lot. So as I said, I, I definitely took prohibition. So one of the first things I did is I settled in with Ken Burns' documentary, Prohibition. And I took, you know, several pages of avid notes about the things that interested me about prohibition, the role women played in bringing it about, the ways women subverted it, also just what what it looked like in practice, you know, who was, um, what, what, how were they enforcing the law? How are they subverting the law? What were speakeasies like? What kind of culture did this create? And then I essentially just took my notes and like whited out the word alcohol or booze and just put magic in its place. And then I mm-hmm. looked at the notes with fresh eyes and said, how much of this do I want to take? You know, what, what of this do I think is interesting and would be interesting in the story I want to tell? And I feel like as it I feel like it really naturally happened um, that I would take a lot of the cultural aspects of the 1920s from my novel. It was such an interesting time for women. It was this time of real change and transition. Um, women were going out and doing things in ways that they hadn't done it before. Um single women, like women were wearing pants more than they they were ever wearing pants before. Mm -hmm. And women were just kind of going out and claiming freedoms, demanding freedoms in in ways they hadn't before. And so I wanted that, I knew I wanted that kind of feel of this big time of transition for women. And I thought, well, what are some of the ways I what are some of the ways I could signal that? And one of them was the fashion. I very much took 1920s fashion, both day and nighttime fashion. I wanted my girls to be wearing fabulous flapper style dresses that really helped to signal their, uh, you know, they're cutting loose their their attempts to grasp their freedom and kind of define the lives they wanted for themselves. The speakeasy mm-hmm. nightlife culture. I really wanted that feeling of this whole illicit underground with secret oh, passwords. Get, and yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> we are going to get right into that later. Don't yeah. you worry. So lots of nightlife jazz music. I took a lot of inspiration. I went to New Orleans for the first time in since I was a kid um, several years ago when I was working on Nightbirds and was really inspired by... Um, the nightlife and the jazz. Um, yeah, so I took a lot culturally, I would say, and in terms of, of fashion and, of course, cocktails. Mm-hmm. Of course. We will we will get to those later mm. too, don't you worry. Yeah, so what about you? Because I know you took a lot from the 1920s, some of which overlaps with me, but some of which really diverged. Yeah, which that's what I find so fun. So, yeah, I, I have a note down later that I want us to talk about. What are the areas that – that one of us took that the other one didn't. But I guess before I, I took into before I get into what I took, I think hearing you talk about the way that you use prohibition, I think really lines up with what I was saying before about how the iceberg needs to go all the way down, even if you don't show it. That mm-hmm. you need to know what the whole system is and know how the world works. Because on some level, even if it's not a conscious one, your reader will know if your world building is shallow. And by going to something like Prohibition, which was real and had the opportunity to play out in great detail and, you know, in many ways we didn't expect and with all of the societal ripples that that you see with a big change like that, you kind of created an iceberg for yourself or you seconded an iceberg for yourself. Yes. And and that I think is one of the reasons that your world building does feel so deep. It gave me a framework to work from because as you say, this was something that yeah. actually had played out and existed and I thought, well, how would how would the fallout effects, some of the more interesting fallout effects, how mm. can I work that into my novel? How can I show how this specifically would have impact specifically would have impacted the women who are really the heroines right. of my story? Right, because reality is always weirder and richer than fiction. There's mm-hmm. stuff that happens in reality that if I tried to put it in a book and handed it in, my editor would send it back and be like, mm, a little too on the nose, don't you think? <laughs> it's true. So, you know, I think. Sometimes the explorer basically writes itself. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, you know, this stuff that we can take from reality, it's often wilder than anything that we would ever dream of making up, mm-hmm. uh, which is really helpful. So, look, I've talked about the the sailing ships that I, I took from the 20s, but 
The other thing I guess that I really went to was I loved the feeling that I got from the 1920s history I was reading up on about how the world was at this crossroads, about how there were these two worlds almost existing side by side, that, you know, some homes had electricity and others definitely did not and were a long way from achieving it. Some had hot showers, some were heating their water over the fire. You could see neon lights in the city and you could see a horse and cart driving right by them. I was really fascinated by that feeling of the world being in flux, which, you know, is is what the 1920s was all about here. It's where that wildness came from. Everyone knew that the world was in flux. We were coming out of a war that had changed everything. We were coming out of a war where women had had to step into new roles that mm-hmm. they had never been in before. And, of course, there was that strange struggle of going back from from where you had been in, into your original place. But we had also just seen a war where soldiers of different races and different classes and from different parts of the world had discovered that they all died the same and that if you needed someone to pick you up and carry you to safety, you suddenly didn't care so much about how different they might be from you. And then, of course, you'd get back to the hospital and the mess hall and it did matter again how different you were. This was this huge sort of strange psychic change that that the world was was grappling with. And I was really interested in that. I was interested in the way that you would see these two strange things side by side. So, you know, I created a world where one country has a royal family who rule absolutely and nobody's mad about it. It's perfectly, perfectly normal. You know, there are advisors, but the Queen's word is law. I also created a country where there was an elected government uh, and a country where the church was wrestling with that government for control, not overtly, but still in a way that everybody understood. I was really interested in the way, and I'll be, brace your buckle up for a vast oversimplification, but, you know, I think it is not a controversial statement to, to make to say that the way the world dealt with Germany after World War One was one of the contributing factors to the occurrence of World War Two. Mm. Obviously, vastly more complicated than that. But when a country loses a war, the way that its economy recovers and the way that its society recovers will obviously echo down through the next several decades, if not longer. And so I looked for a source of that kind of you know, complication and confusion as well. And in one of my countries, lost a war a long time before the story begins. And because this is a fantasy world with interventionist gods, their god was bound in sleep and they were denied access to him. And the church and the government and the people of that country have been acting in response to that ever since. And that is one of the things that is now building towards a war. So I think I was looking for that feeling of old and new existing side by side and, you know, the arm wrestle that happens when one starts to give way to the other. Mm-hmm. And I, I pulled real examples of that from our world and I also, you know, created my own that, that had the same sort of roots and the same inspiration. Mm. And I love, I love that in Isles. I love the feel of you have modernization and you also have these sort of ancient traditions and ways of doing things. You have interventionist gods that kind of harken back to ancient times and how people mm. felt about and interacted with um, their deities, you know, mixed up with like cars and motors yeah. and this, this feeling that there is a push to modernization. And it's this really cool, it creates this really interesting clash. And in Nightbirds, I thought about that a lot in terms of generational clashes, you know, and that the 1920s mm. was such a time of, I think that every generation of, of women, of girls coming up, look at their mothers to some extent and go, it's yeah. like you're from a different world sometimes to me. It's like you grew up in a totally <laughs> different world. I think that that has been true 
forever. But I imagine there were certain time periods where that felt so true, like (laughs) extra true. And I think that I was thinking about that a lot in Nightbirds because you have this younger generation of girls coming up in a time of great flux and change who are operating in this system that's very old and has been Mm. deeply entrenched. And you have older women who are shepherding these younger women through the night bird system. And when they start to push Mm -hmm. back and say, yeah, but why? Why are are we doing it this way? And the older generation are like, well, there are lots of reasons why. And there's this just clash Mm -hmm. between a lot of women who are trying to do their best, (laughs) but who aren't necessarily are resistant to some of the changes that they're seeing in the world around them and clinging to the system they used to know. And I think that's just so true and representative of the 20s generally. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it happens every generation. I think it's the, the unique trauma of all of us is that we grow up questioning everything our parents said, and then we achieve our parents' age mm. and we realize, one, that, you know, they had a couple of points. Two, we start <laughs> to hear their words come out of our mouths. We start to hear ourselves say the things that they said. Oh. And you're watching yourself from the outside. I certainly watch myself with my daughter from the outside occasionally thinking, oh, my God, my mother is speaking through my mouth. What is happening? (laughs) Uh, But, you know, you also do grow up to not adopt some of the things that you questioned. You do Mm -hmm. grow up to to change some of them. And, of course, those older generations, to varying degrees, um, you know, among them, they also adopt the changes. Mm -hmm. You know, there are are things that people our age and, and much older than us would say and believe now that they hadn't contemplated. 20 years ago. That change is cool. Yes. And the other thing that I was thinking a lot about in the 1920s as I was writing Nightbirds was women in America had only had the right to vote for like two minutes. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, suffrage had been such a big part and was still a part of women's lives mm. in the 1920s. And they were able to speak and to interact in politics in a way they never had before. But there was also still yeah. this feeling of, but we kind of rather you not, right? Like, there were still a lot of people sure. who were like, uh, we're not really sure we 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 want you to be doing that on a grand scale. So there was still lots. Mm, good of- thing that never happens now, Kate. I know, right? History never repeats <laughs> itself, does it? And there were lots of things happening with reproductive rights and access to uh, healthcare for women. I mean, there's just, there's a lot there. There's a lot there that was mm. swirling around as I was thinking about what, what was it like to be a woman in the 1920s? Yeah. What is it like to be a young woman in this world that has some aspects of the 1920s? You know, where do yeah. those things intersect? Which is just such a fun game to play as authors. It is. I mean, no matter what world you're creating, no matter what you're drawing from, the friction is where the story is mm-hmm. always. always. That's where you go to find your story. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of the, let's get into the nitty gritty, some of the 1920s mm-hmm. little nuggets that we found that made their way into the books or provided yes. extra inspiration. Yes, yes. Shall we do fashion first? Uh, of course. <laughs> always, <laughs> always. Always, Amy, always. Well, it's just this is this was one of my favorite pieces of research, and we did it together. Mm-hmm. So we went to this beautiful classic old home here, and we went to an exhibit of the outfits of Franny Fisher, Lady Detective, <gasps> and you know, I mean, just wholesale stole designs, dresses, outfits, oh yeah, all kinds of things. But it was a great example of that sort of. Don't go deep, go shallow. Just go and expose yourself and see what you find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and I know I mean, that you found you and I all both, kinds of stuff. You yeah, stole. yes, you and I both stole things. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, pretty much just literally stole it <laughs> from. Well, I wish yeah. we had literally stolen it from the exhibition. Stole the design from the exhibition. Yes, um, asterisk. Do not control it. Do not contact us, authorities. We did not. We we didn't touch it and would never. No, we were no. very good. What I was so interested in was looking at the details of the kinds of dresses they were wearing in the 1920s. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit on the Explorers. I think Mm -hmm. we all have that silhouette in mind of kind of the shapeless, stylish sack. You know, we're not Mm -hmm. showing a lot of cleavage. It's meant to be kind of a somewhat a columnar silhouette. But I was interested Mm -hmm. in some of the details of those dresses because they were Women could move in those dresses in ways they had yes. never been able to move before. And they were yes. showing more leg than they had ever shown before. Although 
Mm-hmm. Listen, a, a traditional 1920s hemline should never go above the knee. Okay. So if you're going to a costume party <laughs> and someone is wearing one of those dresses where it's a really short hem. No. But anyway, it was also some of the <laughs> some of the stylistic choices that they made. Like these dresses were racy. Even though they weren't showing a lot of skin, they were racy mm-hmm. and that they women could move in new ways. They were wearing less cloth. It was less structured than it had ever been before, mm-hmm. which I think is just so it, it's such a reflection of what life was like for women yeah. in the 20s. It was a metaphor. Yes. But also there were these incredible little details. One of the dresses that I loved was this blue sequin dress and it had this amazing cape that draped mm-hmm. halfway down her back. And it was both suggestive, but it was also kind of like, it felt almost like a throwback to medieval times. And you actually do see that a lot in the 1920s. You see these dresses called tabard dresses, which were essentially medieval style uh, picture like, I don't know, a page from Sword in the Stone. And he's essentially just wearing like a giant tablecloth runner with a hole (laughs) for the neckline, Mm -hmm. right? And it just ties on the side and he's got a tunic underneath. That's what a tabard dress is. And that was the kind of thing that women were wearing. And they were both glamorous and beautiful and a little bit risque, but also just like the freedom of movement. Fashion changed so Mm -hmm. much in the 20s. So yeah, I definitely stole the capelet and gave it to one of my characters. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, there were many things I loved about it, but there was a particular character I had been struggling with enormously. She is the younger sister of one of the most influential gangsters in town. Her big sister runs large sections of of the underworld. And this girl is determined to prove herself to her big sister. She's that person that we've all seen who... You know, they put in the extra hours at work, they they stay back and you watch them and you think, this is never going to pay off. There's n- You're never going to get what you need out of this. But she has this determination, this anger driving her. And I had been trying to design her. I had been trying to figure out what she was going to wear, what she was going to look like, because a lot of that, you know, goes into – creating a character mm. as you work out what they look like as you work out how they express themselves you begin to work out who they are and you know one drives the other and the other drives the one and so on but it was when I rounded a corner and I saw one of the suits belonging to Dr. Mac that I had this crashing wave of realization and I thought oh she doesn't wear a dress that's why I haven't been able to figure out what she looks like mm-hmm. she wears a suit And instantly everything I needed to know about this girl, about her last year her name is, was in my mind. Everything that I had been trying to figure out because I realised that, you know, women were wearing pants in this era, Mm -hmm. but it was a a particular statement when you did. And I realised, yeah, she is the type of person who is making this particular statement. She wants to stand out. She wants to claim everything that comes with that choice. So. Mm That was that was a very important fashion moment for me. Yes. And I know that you and I both pulled a lot of inspiration, different pieces of inspiration from 1920s speakeasies. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> you and I absolutely. both have a couple of scenes set in speakeasies that um, mm-hmm. uh, yours may or may not have been strong-armed out of you by me. <laughs> I mean, look, look. there is, for those of you who are kind and enthusiastic enough to to pre-order a copy of The Isles of the Gods, when you hit a certain nightclub scene that is extra romantic, you can thank the Exploress for the existence of that scene. You're welcome. Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons that, that I find that scene interesting is that I, you know, I had created this city that was, you know, in this liminal space I've talked about, you know, the old and the new and the everything else. And when mm-hmm. Kate read the draft, one of the things she said to me was, I want to walk off the edge of the page more. I want to go and explore some of these places that you are giving me hints exist. I want more of the fun of this place that you have promised me. Mm-hmm. And so the nightclub was what we chose. Uh, and I created this whole scene that I knew the scene needed to take place, but I didn't know where I was going to put it. And I put it in a nightclub precisely because Kate was wise enough to point out that when we think about the Roaring Twenties, one of the things we think about, you know, whether it's a a speakeasy or a club or however you want to, you know, label it, 
there's such a such a part of it Mm-hmm. And we both had a lot of fun creating them. Oh yes, we did. And uh, I believe yes. I believe that your scene features a a disco ball or a mirror ball, which it, it sure you does. discovered were around in the 1920s, <laughs> right? Which, I mean, I knew I wanted one because I wanted the visual, but I thought surely they didn't exist. And then I thought, well, if they didn't, I don't see why I couldn't argue that someone could make one. I mean, right? You know, they had everything they needed. But then when I went looking, nope. Not a problem, not something I'd pictured in the 20s, <laughs> but definitely something that existed already. I love it. Um, and you you did a, a combination of creating and, and borrowing. I want you to talk about, mm. about cocktails and dancing, please. Oh, yeah. Well, so as I've said, in, in this world I've created, magic is illegal. And there are two kinds of magic. There's the intrinsic magic that the nightbirds have. It's very rare. It's past through the blood, only women have it. So this is a magic that is just controlled by women for women. And then you Mm -hmm. have alchemical magic, which is something that an alchemist can brew up into a potion. Sometimes they're used for medicine. Sometimes they're used for things like making food taste better. And often they are used for recreation. And so Mm -hmm. you can go to clubs, underground clubs in my city of Simta, and you can have yourself a magical cocktail that will do things like make your skin glow for the evening or make you look like you have pointy teeth. They can help you to speak perfecta, a foreign language for an hour. Um, They have all sorts of, and they're like bombs that will make your hair different colors. And there's, um, there are trickster tailors who can essentially like enchant your dress for the evening so that the design on it, it looks like it's alive, you know, like if you have flamingos on your dress, they'll flap their wings every so often. And I really wanted to show that. So uh, my character, Sayer, sneaks out late at night and she goes into what's called the Green Light District, which is a pretty rough and tumble area, but it's also famous for its nightlife and its parties. She goes into a club where you need the secret password to get in. And then Mm -hmm. she arrives in this place with, you know, an amazing jazz band and uh, lots of gangsters and a description of the both the girls that are there and the magical cocktails. So some of the things I took straight from the 1920s in crafting this scene were uh, there's there's a very scandalous dance that a lot of the women are mm-hmm. doing that I have called the deep water creep, which was supposed to be much like some of the popular scandalous uh, dances they were doing in nightclubs in the 20s. You do have these magical cocktails. So you have experienced barkeeps behind the bar who are making, you know, they know how to essentially brew up these drinks that are going to do. They're not just going to give you a buzz. They're also going to give you a little extra something, something. And um, you also have uh, alchemicals that will do things like there's a there's a woman singing on stage, she's an incredible jazz singer, and the she's used some kind of alchemical to amplify your voice. So it's kind of like take everything that feels glamorous to us about a club from the 1920s, but make it magic. Yeah. Our writers group had a lot of fun brainstorming what these cocktails could do. Yes. I have a very long list on on my notes app of all the different cocktails. I couldn't include them all, sadly, but I included many. Well, there's, there's a second book to come. There's still plenty of time. That's right. Yeah. You know, another little club detail that I included. One of my favorites is I put my grandmother's champagne sauces from the 1920s oh, into one I of the scenes. Oh, I love that. And no one but me will know that that's what they are, mm-hmm. but they're so glamorous. I still have them oh. today. I'm a little terrified every time I use them, but I still have them. Well, you and I and are gonna, hiding in my book. You and I are going to have to toast with them uh, next time. next time we're together to celebrate. I think we should. Mm-hmm. I think we should. One of the other things that I included, speaking of personal items you work into your book, is I have this incredible necklace. I'm sure it I'm sure it has a technical name. It's kind of like a locket, but it's it's a perfume necklace. So it's the kind of thing that it's it's gold, it's metal. You unscrew its top and you can put a liquid within it. So my character Matilde It's a family heirloom. She has had this necklace. It used to be her grandmother's necklace. And she has a very special and highly illegal potion in it that she occasionally uses on clients when she's acting as a nightbird. I will not tell you what it does, but uh, she takes Mm. great pride in carrying a secret like that around her neck. So we talked before about how you can 
I guess, take it or leave it or change it when it comes to the the historical stuff that you research. Mm -hmm. And one area we began in the same place and then completely diverged was transport and technology. So I have a mix of sailing ships and steamships. I have cars. I have horse-drawn wagons. I have smaller sailing ships as well. I have, you know, a, a fishing boat. Uh, researching fishing boats from the 1920s, not as easy as you would imagine, <laughs> uh, especially when you need them to serve a very specific purpose. Mm. But I sort of went the full gamut in that respect, whereas you didn't move into the area of the, the steamship or the car at all. No, no. I When it came to technology of the 1920s, I very much left it. Um, I would say that technologically, my world is kind of stuck in the Renaissance still in, in many respects. I'd say medicine is more like Victorian era. And the re- there are a couple of reasons why, but the main reason why was because I thought to myself, well, in a place where you have magic, that can do a variety of things. I mean, the thing to know about my world is that prohibition against magic has not always existed. There were, there were, it's only been around for a couple of years. So there was plenty of time where magic was more plentiful and in greater use. But in a world where you have magic that can act as a medicine, um, that can, you know, act as social lubricants that can um, mm-hmm. be traded. And, you know, when you have yeah. that, what does technology yeah. look like? I feel like there wouldn't be as much of an impetus to come up with things like running right. engines. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, the same way water forms a river wherever the easiest path is, wherever the path of least resistance is. Mm-hmm. Humans follow the path of least resistance. And if they can do it with an alchemical, why would they mm-hmm. build and operate a machine? Right. So, and so I wanted to play around with, you know, if we have magic and we have so much of 1920s culture, but we leave behind a lot of the tech and magic really is the tech, what does that feel like? What does that look like? And then what if there's a prohibition against it? What does that look like? Right. And so my magic was very Mm element-based. It is there are spirits that uh, can control each of the elements and a magician will charm spirits of one particular type. So some types of magic replace tech. You know, we wander through a a street market and we see someone again me just putting something I loved in the book you know those giant paella pans that you can sometimes see at markets that are like the size of the hood of a car yes you know we see one of those and a fire magician is charming the fire spirits to keep the heat equally warm under the whole pan Mm -hmm. you know we see sailors charming the wind spirits to ease their boats out of port without needing a tow You know, we see little bits and pieces like that, but on the whole, it is not a world where it is simply always easier to achieve something with magic than it is to achieve it with physical effort. Mm. So, I mean, I suppose that's the tipping point, isn't it, is at what point does the magic make it easier and so you use the magic, Mm -hmm. at what point does it not? But although these things might come across very very simply in the book, it might seem as though, you know, these answers are obvious. They're actually the kind of thing that we go back and forth on a lot and debate out, you know, as authors to the nth degree, because if you don't work it out up front, it will bite you in the butt down back. Mm -hmm. You will suddenly reach a point where you realize, oh no, I'm eight decisions along a decision tree and I didn't think properly about the second one. Oh yeah. And now my house of cards has begun to tumble. Yes. (laughs) And everything really does have ripple effects. And it's one of the Mm. things that's been such a joy of, I mean, you know, you and I wrote these books alongside each other. You know, we we read over each other's shoulders at different points. And it's been such a joy to build my world um, with you there to... I don't know, to, to talk, it's been a joy to talk about world building with you and to think about the different ways we can use the 1920s and our very different worlds and very different stories. And I think the result is two books with really rich, immersive worlds. Yeah. And really wonderful things in common and also really interesting differences. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's clearly something that we could talk about all day, Yes, but I'm really glad that we got the chance to do it here because- I think that, you know, history nerds do take a particular interest in it. They mm-hmm. do spot little things and they appreciate knowing that. And when I say they, I mean we, of course. Mm-hmm. 
we appreciate knowing how and why the author made choices and that they thought about it and spotting the little Easter eggs. Mm. So I hope listeners enjoy the books now, having seen just a little bit of what went into to creating the world. Yes. And I just want to say thank you to all of you listeners for being on this journey with the Explorers for these four plus years. You have been mm. such a huge support to me. And if you if you do buy yourself a copy of Nightbirds, and I truly hope you will, um, you should flip to the back to the acknowledgements because there might be a little mention, a little shout out to the Explorers listeners back there. You all have been a huge support to me and an inspiration to me. And so much of that was poured into the making of Nightbirds. So Amy, this has been a delight. I feel like all the things I love most yes. in the world have just like amalgamated into a ball of shiny <laughs> 1920s mirror ball glory. <laughs> so thank <laughs> you so much for coming on to the Explorers and talking all things yes. historically inspired novels. Thank you for letting me sneak in. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to pre-order Amy's novel, The Isles of the Gods, which comes out on May 2nd. You can find out all about it, including Amy's pre-order campaign, tour stops, and other author news over at her website, amykaufman.com. And if you're a writer, make sure to listen in to Amy's other show, Amy Kaufman on Writing, where she answers listener questions about the craft of writing, giving you bite-sized but jam-packed wisdom about how writers do what they do. Thank you.